0: Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest on uh, this Wednesday afternoon. What would this be? This would be May 13th and we are indeed coming to you live both by Zoom and live streaming on Facebook. I even have a, a helpful assistant with a sign up reminding me to go live because last week we spent the first 11 or 12 minutes talking to no one and we are live on Facebook I think we are, aren't we, Chase? I believe so. Yeah, I just checked and shared the screen, so
1: yes, or shared the uh, your Facebook post, so yes, we are live on Facebook. By the way, guys, it's good to be back. It sounds like you guys had, uh, had a somewhat good
0: podcast last week. The first, the first 11 or 12 minutes were the best we've ever, ever done, <laughs> and no one will ever see it. Joe, good afternoon. How are you today in Elmira, New York?
2: I'm great, Jeff. So,
0: should I keep this or no? No, We're good. We're good. (laughs) You won't need it anymore in the future. No, actually, you better keep it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, we're going to be talking about John chapter 15, the vine and the branches, and the concept of eternal security. First of all, let's just look at the text. Let's just walk through the text and and get the point that, that we're supposed to get in this passage. And then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the idea of eternal security and the implications of this past. So I'll tell you why this comes up, uh, how, why this comes to mind. I've been talking with a uh, an individual who um, is a believer. Uh, he attends a church in which uh, once saved, always saved is taught. Um, and he struggles with the concept. He sees that the Bible says a lot of things that would suggest that's not true. On the other hand, he sees a lot of value in the idea that you, you can't be lost and he's struggling. And So he brought up John 15 and so that's why, why this comes to mind. But let's just first of all look at the text in John chapter 15 verse 1. I'm going to read this guys and then let's just walk through and talk about it. So I'm going to start in verse 1 and uh, I'm going to go down through about verse 12. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes it away, and every branch that bears fruit, he cleanses it, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, so neither can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so shall you be my disciples. Even as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I've spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And really, that's a bad place to stop. He goes on and talks about greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus was about to do that. But let's talk about this idea of the vine and the branches and really just kind of open ended. What what are we supposed to get out of this text here? What do you guys see in it?
2: Well, just a tremendous emphasis on abiding. Uh, What how many times is it used there?
0: Yeah. Uh, did anybody count? But that's right. And it's not just a statement of fact, but there is a, it sounds like an instruction. You, you are to abide. Do this in verse nine. Um, what about, uh, as we go back just to the metaphor here, uh, you have a plant, uh, You have, and, and maybe the idea here would be a, a grapevine. I don't know, but you have the core trunk of a tree, or in this case, a vine, and then you have branches coming off of it, and those branches are not even going to live if they don't stay connected to the, to the main part of it, right? Right. And they're not going to bear fruit unless they stay connected to the main part of it. Well, Jesus is saying he is the branch, he is the uh, vine. What do the branches represent? This was part of the discussion I was having with uh, the individual I was talking with. What do the branches represent?
2: Well, it seems like he's saying you, you disciples, uh, uh, the,
0: the, the people who, he's, who Jesus is speaking to.
1: Yeah. I am the vine, you are the branches, verse 5.
0: Yeah. Well, could it be, when I was a kid, I used to hear that maybe the denominations would use this passage to justify the existence of different denominations. You have different branches of Christianity, and each organization or each denomination is a branch of Christianity. And I had never really heard that again until talking with this individual. And last week, he kind of, I think that was kind of the idea he was putting forth. Could the branches be like different congregations or different denominations? What about that as you look at this text? I down at, go ahead, Chase. So I was just to understand
1: your, your friend's point of view. He's saying that the different branches represent different denominations and they all make up this one tree that is Jesus is kind of the idea that he's pulling. I'm from not
0: this. sure that was his point. And whatever it was, it wasn't that he was so much advocating it as he was saying, well, is it possible? Is that possibly the meaning here? And that is what uh, I had been given to understand. Maybe some denominations had done with this passage at various times. They had said, you know, the the Lutheran church could be one branch and the Methodist church could be a branch. Maybe Roman Catholicism is one branch and so on. Well, I, I,
2: two, two problems I would see with that. Uh, and Maybe I'm not going to be absolute about this, but if that's the case, then everybody in that branch, as long as that branch is okay, everybody in that branch or everybody in that denomination then would be okay.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's one thing. About verse six, um, verse six says, "If a man abide yeah, not, so, in thee. go ahead." So, we're, what we're trying to figure out
1: is what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Because those who are the branches are those who abide in Him.
0: No, first of all, we're trying to figure out what's a branch: is a branch a person or is a branch an organization?
2: So, so in uh, the New King James, I, I've got if anyone does not abide, I think it's the same point.
0: Yeah, and in fact, if you look at it in Greek, it's if someone, but that's not language that you use of of, of an entity like a denomination or a congregation. Uh, and so the American Standard translates it, if a man abide not in me. Or verse eight, um, in uh, verse, uh, what was it, verse nine? Yeah, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, was the branches who's supposed to bear, be bearing fruit and so shall you be my disciples. Not so shall you be my organizations, not so shall you be my churches, not so shall you be my denominations, but you'll be my disciples. Hmm. Um, I think the context is clear. Verse six, uh, verse eight, it's individual people, individual disciples who are the individual branches. Each person is a branch in this context. The picture is about us as individuals needing to stay connected to Christ. It's not about organizations needing to stay connected to Christ.
1: Could you make the argument as well that if it was different denominations, you see different denominations bearing different kinds of fruit? and that would be inconsistent with the yeah. metaphor. Yes, yeah. well, yeah. so you got a vine. Season.
0: You got this branch grows apples, but this branch yeah. over here it grows grapes, and this branch branch over here it grows pomegranates, and so on. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be bizarre. Um, right. Okay. So so if we understand the context, that it's talking about people being connected to Christ. Each of us has to be connected to Christ in order to stay alive, in order to produce fruit, in order to bear fruit. Uh, in a plant, in the metaphor, when you cut off, when you have a branch and it's either s- sickly or it just the fruit on that branch is not any good or it's, it's, you, you cut that branch off, right? And, and, you, and you gather up the branches, you cut off and you burn them. What would that represent here?
2: Casting it away from life, uh, the you know the 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 tree or the the main trunk is going to be the source of life for for the branch, and so by cutting it off, it has no life in it. It's going to die. It's
0: going to wither, right? Then we come to the last part of verse two. <clears throat> so in verse two, the first part, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes it away. But then the last part of verse two, and this is something he and I talked a good bit about because he was using the New International Version, and it reads differently. The last part of verse two in the American Standard says, "Every branch that bears fruit, He cleanses it, uh, that it may bear more fruit." And His Bible, the New International Version, said something different. Do either of you happen to have New International Version there handy, Chase? Maybe you can reach right back there on your bookshelf. Yeah, I, I think behind my
1: plentiful bookshelf behind me, I have an NIV. So let me just uh, let me just. Grab that and open it up. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm such an egghead with all these mini books and different resources that I'm able to go through. Uh, just so thankful for these mini books that
0: I have. So
1: it almost
2: makes yeah, so, you look like you you have a you have a hero in your mind that you're trying to be like.
0: No, don't do that. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, so John
1: 15, uh, John 15, what is it? Verse uh, the end of verse two in the NIV. You want to know?
0: Yeah, into verse two.
1: Yeah, so it says uh, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes, so he that prunes. it will be even more
0: fruitful. He prunes. Whereas in the American Standard it says he cleanses it, uh, and so this was at first a little bit, you know, uh, of a question of interest. Well, why does one say prune and why does one say cleanse? Um, what do you? What do you? Do, you, do, you, do you, either of you have a thought there or? or or if not, uh, it'll be my turn. Well, I I will just say as well, the
1: New American Standard also says prunes there. Does it? uh, Does it? Okay.
0: So in Greek, the word is is a word that would mean cleanse. Um, And so, as a matter of fact, it's the word that we get uh, cathartic from when you talk about something that is cleansing. But if you talk about a plant and you're gonna cleanse a branch, what are you doing?
2: if you're cleaning up a branch you're 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 making it so it's going to to be more productive
0: so on this branch there may be some weak twigs or dead leaves or something like that so you strip those off of that branch you don't cut the branch off but you cut those things off of the branch and so in effect you're pruning the branch now if if this, but this is talking about a branch that abides in the vine so the last part of verse 2 um every branch that bears fruit. So it's a branch that's abiding in the vine and bearing fruit. Um, so uh, so yes, uh, um, I, I got distracted here. Yes, programming note. Yes, I'm using my good microphone. I don't know why it sounds otherwise. But um, so, so you've got a, a, a branch that is, a, is, this is not one, a branch that's gonna be cut off and thrown into the fire. This is a branch that's abiding in the vine and it's bearing fruit. Now, spiritually, what does this, rec- this, this represent, the idea of cleansing this branch?
1: Well, I mean, I think being cast off, I mean, I think it means eternal damnation. You're, you're not abiding in Jesus. You don't get to look be at the on the tree.
0: But look at the end of verse 2. See, the first part is every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes it away. And then we got you Oh,
1: you're, you're wanting to emphasize so that it may
0: bear more fruit. No, nope, no. Nope. Yeah. Well, that's what he says. Every branch yeah. that bears fruit. Now we're not talking about one that's not bearing fruit. We're talking one that's bearing fruit. And he cleanses or prunes oh, it. Okay. Yeah. And it may bear more fruit. So I think this is, I think this is not cutting that branch off. This is sure, yeah. enabling that branch. So spiritually, what would that mean? I think that would mean something like the refining process that we're each supposed to go through. Uh, the fact that, uh, you could, you could think and I think maybe in our conversation, we alluded to the statement in Matthew five, uh, you know, if your right hand offends you, uh, cut it off, that kind of thing. Um, let me go back there. The, the,
2: the testing of our faith, uh, you know, uh, the, the idea of, of trials and tribulations even uh, helping to strengthen
1: us.
0: Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. What,
1: what, what about like Hebrews 12? Um, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Same, <laughs> same type of discipline.
0: Now, so, so maybe, maybe pruning makes more sense, except I think the tendency when a translation says pruning in verse 2, we tend to think cutting that branch off. But that, I think that misses the point. This is not a branch that's being cut off. This is a branch that's being improved so that it can bear fruit. So and
2: then, in, in our courtyard, we have a fruit tree, and uh, I have a fellow who used to, uh, his, his dad used to run an orchard And he just, in passing, was telling me, oh, you know, what you have to do is you have to go up into those top branches and just kind of trim it around, and it will end up really blossoming much better. Yeah. That's the idea. It's not cutting the branches off, but it's just cleaning up the edges of it.
0: So we have two kinds of cutting here, I guess you could say. On the one hand, we have the idea we've got this whole plant, Jesus is the vine, and all the branches that are just bad branches, they're not bearing fruit. Cut those off, and they get burned but then we've got the good branches that do bear fruit, but even those need some attention and they need the the dead stuff stripped off of them, cut away from them so that those branches themselves, which are productive, can even be more productive. So that's the idea here. And now we see a connection to verse three. Verse two and verse three are connected. And I wonder if you're looking at the NIV or the New American Standard, how they maintain this connection because verse three says, already you are, clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. When he says you are clean, he's using the, the the adjective that's related to the verb in verse 2. Cleansed in verse 2, and you are clean. The word has had its effect on you, and so you, you are clean. You've been prepared. This is uh, shortly before Jesus is crucified, the night before he's crucified. He spent three years, thereabouts, with his apostles, teaching them, preparing them, so on. So he says, you are clean because of the word that is in you. But if you have the NIV and it says prune in verse two, then what does it do in verse three? Or if you have the New American Standard and it says prune in verse two, then what do you do in verse three? It's, It's prune and then clean in the New King James. And so if you have prune in verse two and clean in verse three, you you kind of lose the connection between the two, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the language isn't as intentional. Uh,
0: it does, it's not as clear there. The what does the NIV do Chase in verse three?
1: It says, it says you are already clean, just like the new American standard. All right. Okay.
0: All right. Now, now let's, let's take a moment here. So one of the things that I was, I was trying to, to stress is, Um, verse two when in the conversation I was having with my friend is verse two, every branch in me, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes it away. And what I was stressing is the significance of the words in me. Mm -hmm. What does that say to you?
2: There are some branches that aren't even in him.
0: There are some branches that are not in him, but there are some branches that ha- that were in him that are going to end up in the fire. Yeah. And and this was a little bit of a puzzle to him. And, and it would be a puzzle to anybody who believes you cannot lose your salvation. This is not a picture of of Jesus is the vine, and there's some other, some branches that are lying over there on the ground that never were connected to the vine. This is a picture of Jesus as the vine, and there's some branches that were in him, but they're not bearing fruit, and so they're going to be cut off and burned in the fire. Am I, am I making too much of that?
2: No, no, I think it's a very legitimate point. I mean, that it, it it's hard to make too much out of it. You're almost simply quoting what the verse says.
0: It's what it looks like to me. And so to, to be just abundantly clear, you could have somebody who, if they were in Jesus, they were saved. That that To be in Jesus is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if they were in Jesus, they were saved, and now they're going to be cut off and burned in the fire because they're not bearing fruit. Um, any other thoughts that you want to notice in this text about that? One thing we do need. One thing. One thing we do need to talk about before we leave this passage is what does it mean to bear fruit? Uh, but where do you want to go with this? Do you want to go there? Is there something else you want to pick up on in this text before we move on to Romans the eighth chapter?
2: So the, does verse eight also play into uh, this scenario uh, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples? It seems to be the implication that if you're not bearing fruit, then you're not his disciple.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Okay,
1: all right. So, so, Joe, your translation says that you bear much fruit so that you are my disciples? So
2: so you will be my disciples.
1: So you will be. So it's interesting. My translation says my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Yeah. That's really cool. And so I think you're right, Um I kind of like the emphasis from the New King James Version, then from that point, that it's more than just an expectation to bear fruit. Uh, You have to bear fruit. Uh, It's not like it's a bonus or you get extra credit because you bear fruit. You need to do that. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus. And there's a lot we could say about that.
2: It kind of sets up that pericope from verse 2 and and verse 8, both of them insisting on bearing fruit.
1: Yeah. Bless you, by the way. Um, what does mean, "fair fruit"? I, yeah, I, I think I think again, like th- there's a thousand different ways to answer that. Uh, first thing that always comes to my mind is the fruit of the spirit.
0: Um, it's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah. Um, the, the, if I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, I'm I am walking in His ways. I am, I am, I am living in accordance with His spirit. And if I'm living in accordance with the Spirit, then that's going to bear the fruit of love, peace, joy, and so on that we see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following.
2: Which is, which is exactly, you know, the context doesn't change uh, all the way through verse 17, right? Uh, in verse 16, he's talking about bearing the fruit. And right before that, he's saying, this is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I've loved you. Uh, that, that kind of goes into that concept of the the fruit that needs to be born is uh, this, uh, this attitude that the, that the disciple is going to, to carry forth, love being one of them uh, here.
0: Coming to the end of verse 9, I'll read the whole of verse 9. Even as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. And then the last five words in the American Standard Version are, abide you in my love, or actually it says abide ye in my love. That's an imperative. That's a command. That's a, that's a statement. You need to do this. What do you need to do? You need to abide in my love. So one of the things that we've been talking about, my friend and I, is the idea of God's love, whether it's unconditional or not. And, and the idea that he was trying to, to work his head around was, well, isn't God's love unconditional? And the fact is, God, without any any requirements on the part of man, provided Jesus as a sacrifice, and that's a demonstration of God's love. Uh, God commendeth His own love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's from five and verse eight. And so, did man have to meet certain conditions, become good enough for God to say, "Okay, I'll send a sacrifice"? No, God.
1: No, we'd, we'd still be waiting.
0: We'd still be waiting. So God demonstrated his love unconditionally. Uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish. Wait a minute, whosoever believes on him. So God demonstrated his love. is because he loves man that he provided the sacrifice. But man's benefiting from that sacrifice is conditional. It, in John 3.16, the condition is summed up as believing on him. And uh, we can talk about what all that entails another time. But the point is that if I get get to thinking God's love is unconditional and what that means is I'm going to be saved no matter what I do, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. And here in verse 9, the onus is on me. It's my responsibility to abide in the Lord's love. It's a command. Abide you in my love. If I have no choice whether I abide in God's love, why would it be commanded?
2: Excellent point. Uh, th- th- even the, the next verse: "If you keep my commandments."
0: All right, let's go. go. Was something else on this on this text before we go to Romans eight? So the problem the problem that a lot of people have, and, and I think my friend is struggling with this a little bit the problem that a lot of people have is if it's possible that I can be lost, then how can I be confident in my salvation? What does that say about God? Um, and apparently to some, it's, it's they, they feel like they lose their motivation for being a Christian because I might be lost. And and then for some, for the those who are really Calvinists, it's, well, then you're taking away from God's sovereignty. God's not in control, and God has to be in control. So therefore, I can't have a choice. So let's talk, and, and of course, the term, the phrase eternal security is the phrase. You don't hear, I don't hear people in the denominations using the phrase once saved, always saved so much lately that's what they believe, that's what many of them believe, but what they tend to wanna to say, they wanna talk about eternal security. And I guess it's, maybe it sounds a little better, maybe it sounds like I'm not putting the emphasis on, yay, no matter what I can do, I can be lost. Uh, I mean, <laughs> no matter what I can do, I can be saved. Uh, I didn't say that, anyway. It uh, they feels like they're putting, maybe it's loftier, sounding astounding to say eternal security. I think, depending on what we mean by that phrase, eternal security, I think that you can say the Bible teaches it or doesn't teach it. Uh, is, is that fair? Would you say I'm going too far there?
2: No. Uh, there, there, there is a promise of eternal security. Uh, yeah. Again, it is connected to
0: conditions. Um, well, how, if, it's con- if it's connected con- to conditions, if I have to meet conditions, how is it eternal security? how can i be secure in my salvation see that's the question that people are asking
1: yeah and this is uh this is a helpful exercise we live in a world of extremes like we we like running to one way or we love running to the other and so as your friend is dealing with this this teaching it could be easy to just run to the opposite extreme and say well then this is sad we never know if we're saved we're just we never know if we're if god's just going to cut us off because I accidentally thought a bad word or because I I accidentally glanced at this woman who jogged by, I just, he's just going to send me to hell because it's like a light switch over top of my head on and off. Right. And so there's like, there's this running to either side. But I think as you're nudging us towards Romans eight, I think there's a balance here that that needs to be understood.
0: All right. Well, let's look at Romans eight then verse 31 is where we'll start. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? I, I really love this passage. The idea that the one who is all powerful, who is over everything, who, is, who controls the universe, to whom everything and everyone is accountable. If he is for us, who can possibly be against us? Satan may come Amen. and say, well, this, this man, Jeff Smelzer, has sinned. He's done things that are wrong. He can't, he can't have glory. And God can say, wait a minute, I'm for him. And I have seen to it that his sin has been dealt with. His sin has been taken care of. And so here, his position I'm in. God's for me. Who can be against me? Who can bring anything, uh, any accusation against me? Uh, verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He's gone to this extent, to this length, to see to it that I can be saved. How is he not going to do that? Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to come along if it's God who justifies, as he says in the last part of that verse, who's going to come along and make an accusation that condemns? You know, (laughs) we we have this custom at weddings. Um, How does it go? Uh, if there's anyone who knows of any reason why this couple should not be joined in marriage, speak now or forever hold your peace, right? And We're
1: supposed to say that, but I, I haven't said that in the last several weddings I've done or a few weddings. Have you
0: ever been to a wedding where somebody spoke up and said, well, here's why they should not be married?
1: <laughs> I think you'd get right. I,
0: I was nervous at mine, so yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I made sure that the preacher didn't say that at my wedding.
0: Just imagine, just imagine being in some setting where you're on the spot and there's an opportunity for anybody just to speak up and bring some accusation against you. You talk about people running for president, their lives become open books. Everything they've ever done wrong is going to be uh, fair game. And uh, but but if you're in that situation, But the God of the universe is for you. He who knows everything. He who knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, and he has already dealt with it in the sacrifice of Jesus. Whoever might speak up and say, well, here's a reason this person shouldn't go to heaven. And he says, wait a minute. I'm in charge here. I have dealt with this sin. That's not going to stand against this person. So that's kind of the point here. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ Jesus that died. Yea, rather that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What kind of question is that? Rhetorical. Rhetorical. The obvious answer is no one, but there are various things Paul brings into view. Shall tribulation? Or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword even as it is written for thy sake we are killed all the day long we are counted as sheep for the slaughter nay in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us for i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sounds like security, doesn't it? It really does.
1: Um, It's supposed to. Because especially, I love the context that this lies in. In chapter 7, Paul's talking about how miserable it would be to be justified by our works and justified by the law, compared to being justified by Jesus Christ, uh, by his blood. By the Spirit um, and just the eternal security that comes from that, compared to ourselves, it's overwhelming. So I think sometimes
2: people and and uh, the scenario that Chase had presented earlier about you know that that sort of light switch I'm saved I'm not saved I'm saved I'm not saved you know when I when I sin the, does this text not help us with that at the end of verse thirty four, who also makes intercession for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's not our eternal security is not based on us attaining a sinless perfection. You know, where oh, you know I've, I've I've made this point where I I never sin any longer, and uh, so now I can be sure that's kind of taking away grace. Um, uh, you know, okay, now I've I've achieved this sort of deity status. I don't sin anymore but the Lord continues to make intercession for us uh, as long as previously in the chapter we are spiritually minded or as John talks about that we are walking in the light, not perfectly because in John, 1 John 1, if we sin, then we confess those sins. So eternal security doesn't uh, demand that we no longer have, that we've never committed, we don't commit any more sins. It's where our mind is focused.
1: Yeah, yeah. Can, can I also say this? Another cool thing about God being for us uh, is another promise found in 1 Corinthians 10, when it says, no temptation does overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, mm-hmm. who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be, be able to endure it. You know, God, he, he's not promising that there's not going to be trials and that there's not going to be things that we have to work through. But you know what he is promising? I gave you a way out. You just got to look for it. And I love that. We have, a, we have eternal security in, in, the, in Christ and uh, the fact that we're going to go to heaven and we're going to get to go be with him. But I'm also given this promise that even in the moments where it feels like that light above my head is about to be switched off, God is showing me the way out. He has a way for me to get out of that temptation, out of that sin. Um, and so, even in our in our struggle, God is faithful; He is wanting to help us through this journey. so I think that 's even cool. Um, not only eternal security, but we have security now that whatever we 're faced with god god 's faithful he 's going to show us the way out and give us a way out
2: so he he quotes psalm forty four here and I think that this is helpful as well in this in, in relationship to uh, this question of eternal security uh the psalmist is recognizing that they've not been obedient and god has uh made them a reproach their neighbors verse 13. um uh, it appears as if god has forgotten them that's the way the psalmist feels now we know that that's not true but it feels as if the 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 psalmist is, is thinking that the lord has forgotten them and so we have that quote then in psalm 44 verse 22. i think it's just always helpful whenever we see a quote in the new testament to go back and read the larger text and without studying Psalm 44, notice how it concludes, verse 26: "Arise for our help and redeem us for Your mercy's sake." That's what the psalmist, you know, we're, we're being slaughtered; uh, we're, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. at The end of verse 22: We need Your mercy, God. We need Your help. We need Your redemption. Is what he thought. Redeem us. And thinking about that in light of what He's, how He's applying it in Romans 8. Uh, look, notice what he said in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. So t- tie that together with the quote in Psalm 44, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Who, do we, who would we normally think of like that? Jesus. Yeah. And, and so when we're going through difficult times, we're being accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Remember that it's the Lord, that it's God who delivered up his son right. to be sheep. Uh, to, to be that sheep that that was slaughtered,
0: um, he was raised from the dead and had victory. Yeah, so so there is just this glorious comfort that is presented here. So one of the things that I get out of this passage in Romans eight is God wants to save us. We don't have a God who chase. Was it you, you used the stopwatch imagery just a little bit ago or something? I don't know, but so, sometimes people light, have. Light switch.
1: Yeah, light something switch. with a light switch over top of our head, on, off, on, off.
0: So, so some people have the idea that God is just passively sitting in heaven. And uh, if we just if we happen to, to die in a moment of, of weakness or, or whatever, God is impassively watching it. Oh, that guy blew it. Oh, that guy didn't make it. You know how you, you might have. I don't know what what if you if you set up some little experiment with a bunch of mice or a bunch of bugs or something and you see how many of them can make it across this little stick bridge you've made across a bucket of water. Well, that one fell in. Well, oh, that one may make it. No, it fell in. As if that that's the way God is. God is not watching impassively he wants to save us he sent his son to die for us hebrews the first chapter verse 14 talks about his angels that are ministering spirits sent to do service for the sake of those who shall inherit salvation uh we see the active hand of god seeing to it that the eunuch on his way back to africa hears the gospel before he's out of the region cornelius who was obviously a man who wanted to serve God. An angel speaks to him, says, send to Joppa and fetch Peter, who will preach to you words whereby you'll be saved. We have a God who wants to save us, who wanted to save Lot in spite of the fact that Lot was a man who was making some bad mistakes. He chose to live in a bad place for wrong reasons. He was willing to give up his daughters to the men of the city so they wouldn't abuse, homosexually abuse his, his guests and then when the lord says all right get out of the city i'm going to destroy it lot hesitated and yet god takes him out of the city and and god saw something in lot a man who wanted to do what was right the new testament second peter 2 9 describes him as righteous lot a man who whose soul was vexed by the lascivious doings of his neighbors and so what we're really talking about is somebody joe you made the point in romans 8 somebody who has the mind of the spirit somebody who if we sum it up in the word faith as Paul does in the book of Romans or as in John three sixteen, somebody is putting their trust in God. And in spite of the fact that they slip up, they, they, they step into darkness every now and then they're trying to serve God. They want to serve God. They're bringing their lives into subjection to the will of God. What Romans says is God is for us. But here's the thing when this passage was brought up in my conversation with my friend by my friend, and he was bringing it up as a passage that teaches once you're saved you can't be lost so i went back to verse 1 romans 8 is talking about those who are in christ jesus there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in christ jesus that's the context and then you think back to the parable of the vine and the branches abide in me jesus says i am the vine And if you don't abide in him, then you're going to be cut off and you're going to be burned. But if you abide in him, well, you've got security. But that puts the responsibility on us to abide in him, to abide in his love. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for. They're looking to be relieved of that responsibility. They don't want there to be a choice. That's a period you guys can say something
2: <laughs> well i i i think you did i think that nails it um uh, there is a choice and that then requires of us uh growing in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ second peter three eighteen. um uh, we need to be putting forth effort or as we began we need to be bearing fruit uh, there's something that is required of us even as we understand that we're not going to uh, be perfect in that. We need to be striving uh, for, for that perfection. Yeah, and
1: you yeah. know, um, go ahead, Chase. Were you going to bring up the, the comment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well then go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, we, we just got a comment from Joe about First John 1, um, talking about that being a passage that gives us security. Um, beautiful, beautiful text. Um, specifically, what jumps out to me from that, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him, in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we have say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I like to go on into chapter two, just real quick. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Beautiful text. I mean, it emphasizes the need for us to not sin and to keep away from that. That's what, uh, that which is going to separate us from God. But at the same time, he's saying, but if it happens, you have Jesus. Jesus is the advocate. He, I love that word, is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one that atones for us um, and is, is advocating on our behalf to God. And yes. so you can be confident in that.
0: In that same letter, the way it ends up in chapter 5, verse 13, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life, even unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. John's so,
1: really focused on what we can know, isn't yeah. he?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that we can know of our relationship with God with Christ. We don't have to be in doubt. We don't have to want, wonder. We can know that we have eternal life. And then people people in the religious world will come back, though, well, if there's a possibility that I could be lost, how can I know I have eternal life? Well, you've got to make that choice, uh, make that choice to abide in Christ, to abide in his love.
2: It is impressive when we think about this idea of, and probably most of our translations use the word advocate there in chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, that's the same word that's used, uh, John's the only one that uses it, right? Five times, four times in uh Uh, John uh, 14, 15, and 16, uh, and then once here. The other four times it's used in the gospel of John, it's referring to the Holy Spirit being the helper. Um, And so if we want to talk about how much is God for us, uh, we have the Holy Spirit identified as this helper that he is sending, comforter, perhaps your translation says, uh, and then Jesus Exactly the same word, uh, you know. Not that the Spirit and Jesus are the same in that sense, but God is providing everything that we need to to be saved mm-hmm. uh, in Christ, in the Holy, giving in the Holy Spirit. Um, we ought to see. We have responsibility then.
0: So I want to go back just uh, just to wrap up a little loose end here. Back in Romans the eighth chapter, and this goes back to the New International Version. Uh, one of the things that came up in, in the discussion that I was having with my friend in verse 38, in the American Standard of Romans 8, verse 38, it says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there were a couple of things, actually, if we had time. One is he he understood this passage to say Um, that time cannot separate us. In other words, if I'm now a Christian, it's not possible, or if I'm now saved, it's not possible that time could pass and I would not be saved. And he got that because the New International Version says, nor present nor future, or something like that. Do you have the New International Version there at the end of verse 38? Um, Chase? uh, Yeah. What does it say at the end of verse 38? Romans 8, 38. Yeah, the last last couple of phrases there.
1: Yeah, sure, it says in the NIV, um, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, uh, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers.
0: Yeah. So his, he's looking at that and says, well, neither the present nor the future can separate us. In other words, you just it, it can't be that if I'm saved now, that at some point in the future, I could be lost. And i had never been aware of the NIV's translation here. The fact is, in the Greek text, it is it is things present or things coming. Now, there's not a word for things, but what you have is, in both cases, is you have a participle, a neuter plural participle. And so it's talking about things present or things about to come cannot separate us. So that's a fine point, but he was he was led astray a little bit by the New Americans or by the NIV. One other thought here, just we're out of time. I, I can't, I guess make this point all right well we'll let we'll leave it at that for today and we thank those of you who are with us today uh live and those of you who will hear this on the podcast later on we thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again